Well, let me ask you, if you would, uh, to please turn in God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, there's lots of them in the seats in front of you. And in those volumes, there's two different editions. So it's going to be either page 925 or 984 in Colossians chapter 2. And in this letter, this small but very powerful, very significant letter from God through the Apostle Paul to believers in the city of Colossae, um, Paul is sharing both his thanksgiving and his encouragement for God's work among the Colossian believers to whom he's writing. But he also shares his burdens and his concerns for them because he knows that they, like us, live in a wicked world that is filled with many dangers of false teaching, false teaching that could take Christians captive. And so he's burdened to both encourage them, but also to exhort them to be on guard lest they be taken captive. And this morning we're going to focus on verses 11 to 15 of chapter 2. You see the title of the sermon there, Savoring Fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I read the passage, I want to go back to verse 6 in chapter 2 and begin there because it helps set the focus a little bit for the context. So I'm going to start in verse 6 and read through verse 15. So let's hear God's inerrant and eternal word starting again in verse 6 of chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority." In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him." And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer as we seek his help. Our Father, by your spirit and through your word now, would you please save your people and bless your heritage, be their shepherd and carry them forever. And Lord Jesus, you who perfectly know and perfectly care for your people, May you indeed strengthen and purify the faith of each one, perhaps for some even bringing them to repentance and faith to know the forgiveness of their sins. And Lord, may you build and strengthen confidence in you and all that you have given and revealed in the Lord Jesus. Father, please help me to faithfully proclaim your word now for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. 
Well, any of us who drive in any kind of capacity, and I would guess many of you children who have yet to uh, uh, receive your driver's license, we're familiar with the phenomenon of GPS, Global Positioning Satellite. Is that what it is? Global Positioning Service Satellite, something like that, GPS. But we know how it is. There was a day where we didn't have any of that, where we used to use Thomas Guides and hard copy maps. Some might still do that. But most of us now have some kind of GPS function on our phones. And we rely on that. I know I do. Whenever I'm going anywhere that I'm not familiar with, I just put in the address and it gives me a route. And that's typically what I follow. But there have been a few times in my experience with GPS where where it was telling me to go just seemed contrary to every instinct in me. And on those rare occasions where I chose not to follow my GPS, inevitably I would get in trouble or it would just take longer. And so I've learned through the years to implicitly trust my GPS. Now, I know it's not a flawless system. I know many of us can tell stories of times we have trusted it, and it's also gotten us into trouble. But generally, I have absolute confidence in my GPS. And even if my instincts, or I might say in those times where my wife was with me and her instincts run contrary to the GPS, I'm typically going to follow the GPS because I have confidence in it. Well, in the section that we're going to look at today, Paul is concerned about believers' confidence in Christ. Oftentimes, contrary to every instinct in us to not walk with Christ and to not follow Christ, Paul knows, and ultimately God who wrote these words through Paul knows, that we are often tempted to diminish and to shrink in our confidence in Christ. Now, in the portion that I read in verses 6 through 8, that really is the heart of and the central exhortation of the entire letter. God wants his people, we who believe on Christ, he wants us, if you are believing on Christ, to keep walking by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to not deviate to the right or to the left, but to keep walking by faith and to keep growing and maturing and trusting and obeying Jesus and to be avoiding the dangers of false teaching that can threaten to take us captive. And this false teaching has to do with demonic, deceitful, and enticing philosophies that in the end are man-made and man-centered and as a result, destructive. Now, after this central call in verses 6 to 8, Paul then strengthens his command with the declaration that he gives there in verses 9 and 10. When he says, in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And Paul is clearly emphasizing the fullness of God in Jesus and of believers' fullness in him. And so when he says in verse 10 that you have been filled in him, he's talking about what God has done for believers in Jesus Christ, how he has permanently, irrevocably filled them to the fullness. And it's interesting in the New American Standard translation of that passage, as well as in the New King James Version, it uses the word complete, complete with regard to this fullness. And both of those words, as you're going to hear, really kind of intertwine together. So this completeness or this fullness in Christ 
is absolutely massive for any of us who are Christians to understand. In other words, it's big. It is really big for us to understand what it means to be full, what it means to be complete in Christ. And confidence then in our full completeness in Christ is what will keep us on the narrow path of walking by him with faith, walking with him by faith and of avoiding and guarding against the seductive appeal of false teaching. So the need for confidence in our completeness in Christ is what this passage is all about. And this is such a big and a massive issue for believers that what Paul does then in verses 11 to 15 is elaborate on the nature of this fullness, the nature of this completeness. Now, let me just give you Paul's main point in verses 11 to 15. This is the key truth, and it's the big idea of what he is saying to Christians. And I just want to alert you, hang on, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but I'll say it slowly, and I'll say it a couple of times so that you can get it. But here it is. Here's, here's the heart of the passage this morning. Be fully confident in the full completeness that you have in Christ's fullness. I said it was a mouthful, but you get the sense. Here it is. Be fully confident in the full completeness that you have in Christ's fullness. If you are in Christ, if you have been delivered from your sin and delivered from God's judgment through repentance and faith in Christ, be fully confident in the full completeness that you have in Christ's fullness. And again, what Paul is doing then in verses 11 to 15 is elaborating on this full completeness that believers have in Christ. And he's elaborating even on how it is this fullness came to be. And so what we find then in verses 11 to 15 are what I'm going to call four features of fullness. You get the sense we're emphasizing fullness because that's what God is doing through Paul here. Four features of fullness that God gives us to strengthen our confident faith in Jesus so that we don't trust our instincts, but we trust Christ always. So four features, and that's what we want to look at. That's what we want to savor this morning as we we see what God has to say about the nature of our fullness in Christ. So here's the first feature. Here it is, and it's in verse 11. In Christ you have been fully separated. In Christ, you have been fully separated. And this is what Paul is getting at with this language, with this metaphor of circumcision that he draws on. So he says in verse 11, In him, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, again, he's using circumcision as a metaphor, and it's ultimately describing how it is that believers are separated to God. Circumcision has to do with separation. In the Old Covenant, as we learn about in the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis chapter 17 and following, circumcision was an external sign that God had instituted And the intention of that external sign was to remind his people that they were to be fully separated from sin unto him. It was the mark. It was the sign of the covenant. 
But God's intention all along with that external sign is that the physical sign would be a reminder and a symbol of, of, of the spiritual need to be circumcised in heart. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 16, and then also in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, uh, God through Moses there speaks about the need for his people to be circumcised in heart. And so the physical act of, of, of cutting off, which is what circumcision had to do with, was to point to the spiritual reality of needing to have a heart that would be cut off, be separated from sin and separated unto God. Now, Paul actually uses this language elsewhere over in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 2, where he speaks of this in a little bit more detail. So in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. And so Paul there is even drawing on the reality of Old Testament revelation that circumcision was always to be a matter of the heart. And so that's what Paul is talking about in verse 11 of Colossians chapter 2, about the spiritual circumcision of the heart that God has accomplished in his people through Jesus Christ. And the body of flesh there in verse 11 that is mentioned is referring to our sinful nature, to our natural sinful inclination to rebel against God and to follow our own desires rather than to follow God's commandments and God's will. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, if you look down in verse 23, as Paul has uh, just been identifying some of the very specific elements of false teaching and how impotent they are to really accomplish anything, look at what he says in verse 23 of chapter 2. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And that's the same flesh that he's talking about in verse 11, that sinful, natural inclination to follow our own desires rather than to follow the will of God. And so he's talking about the spiritual circumcision of the heart. And he's declaring in verse 11 that in Christ and through Christ, we who are believers have been separated from our sinful nature unto God. He has transformed us. He has changed our hearts so that even though we battle sin and wrestle with sin in our daily experience, we're not ultimately enslaved by it. We wrestle with it because he has changed our hearts. He's made us separated. He has circumcised our hearts unto himself. We're no longer alienated from God, but we're fully separated unto him and reconciled with him. And so he has separated us. He has circumcised our hearts. And so this is the first feature of the fullness that believers have in Christ, that we have been fully separated unto him. And the first reason we could say then of why we should be fully confident in the full completeness of what we have in Christ's fullness. 
Well, let's look at the second feature then, and this is what we see in verse 12 and going into verse 13. And the second feature is this. Not only have you been fully separated, but you've also been fully regenerated. Fully regenerated. And by the way, all of these are deeply woven together and intertwined with one another in the fullness of what God has done for his people in Christ. So you've been fully separated, but also verses 12 and into 13, you have been fully regenerated. And this comes out in the language and in the metaphor of baptism that Paul now employs. And so he says there in verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And the key in where I'm getting this sense of regeneration, to be born again, that's what regenerate means, comes from what Paul says there in verse 13, that God has made us alive together with him. And you see how he's even intertwining uh, this metaphor of baptism along with circumcision. He has separated us unto himself. He has caused us to be regenerated. And what he's emphasizing then is that in Christ, we who believe share in the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the central reality is what Paul says in verse 13, though we were dead in our trespasses. And that's the strongest possible term to speak of what it means to be outside of Christ. We're not only alienated from God, we are dead. We are unresponsive. And that death ultimately leads to physical death, but it leads to far greater reality of eternal death under God's judgment in hell through all eternity. Absolutely dead, absolutely unable to change our own condition. But he says, though we were dead and in the uncircumcision of our hearts, we did not have hearts that were set apart to God. God made us alive together with Christ. And again, that's regeneration. And it's what God did in and through Christ, not anything we could ever do in ourselves. And so Paul uses baptism then as a metaphor for these spiritual realities that have taken place in us who are in Christ by faith. Now, in Romans chapter 6, Paul also uses this language of baptism to speak of these very same realities. And he goes into a little bit more detail there in Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. And then also in uh, his letter to the Ephesians, he doesn't use the language of baptism, but he does use the language of being made alive together with Christ. So, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, after he has just spoken in verses 1 to 3 about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, listen to what he says in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here it is again, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so the full scope of 
all that we know in Christ and through Christ of his life, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection, of now ascended at the right hand of the Father, Paul is saying because we have been regenerated by God in Christ, we share all of that with him. And so along with being fully separated unto God through spiritual circumcision, we are also fully regenerated into this newness of life. Newness of life. We have union with Christ in the fullness of of his life and death and burial, resurrection, and ascension. Earlier in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 of Colossians, Paul talks about the fact that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that transfer, being delivered from the domain of darkness, now brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, is connected with this fact that we've been given new life. We've been changed. We've been transformed, separated unto God. We've been born of God. We've been regenerated. And so because God has done this in us and for us in Christ, we have eternal life in him. And this is another reason, this is another feature of why we are to be confident in the full completeness that we have in Christ's fullness. Because we have been separated, because we have been regenerated, fully separated, fully regenerated. And that leads to the third feature that I want us to see, and it's at the end of verse 13 and then through verse 14, and it is this, that in Christ we have been fully exonerated. We have been fully exonerated. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 13 and then through verse 14. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And notice the emphasis on the the comprehensiveness of his forgiveness. As it's been said many, many times, all means all, and that is all that all means. So all of our sins, past, present, and future, all of our sins have been forgiven in Christ. And verse 14 is kind of an extended elaboration then of even that reality, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, I call this exoneration, that he has fully exonerated us because to to be exonerated means to be cleared of every accusation. It means to be freed from all guilt and all blame. It means to be exonerated, no longer guilty, no longer condemned, no longer under judgment. Now, with this reality, with this feature, Paul gives in what he says there two word pictures that describe how this forgiveness through Christ occurred at the cross. He wants us to chew on this. He wants us to savor this, to to see the riches and the wonder of his forgiveness. So the first word picture is there in verse 14 when he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This record of debt that he is speaking of, or it can be referred to even as a certificate of death, it's that which would accompany criminals on the cross. 
And it was an itemized record, an itemized um, uh, certificate of death that would spell out all of the specific crimes for which they were being punished. In a sense, it was something of an IOU or kind of a pledge of allegiance that perhaps was one time made in light of the law, but now would be giving evidence of the person's guilt in view of that law. So it was a record that testified to their absolute guilt. Do you know that God has a record for every single one of us? He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows the deepest, darkest motives in our hearts and our attitudes and our words and our actions perfectly. And he sees it all. And for any who are not in Christ, that record remains against you, confirming your guilt, confirming your condemnation before God. Well, this is the record of debt, the certificate of debt that Christ took away, that he fully canceled. He fully canceled. And Paul uses this word picture to speak of the guilt that we have in view of breaking God's law. But he's explaining how Christ's work on the cross canceled our debt, absolutely removed that record of debt, that certificate of death, because Christ paid for it himself on the cross. And this is why even back in Psalm 130, the psalmist could write, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? He says, but with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. And he's ultimately looking prophetically and anticipating the work that Christ would do on the cross that would be the means by which that certificate of debt that we all have, that certificate of death, that record of debt that we all have, could be canceled and removed. Well, that's the first word picture, this record of debt. But then the second word picture is at the end of verse 14 when he says that this record of debt was set aside. It was nailed to the cross. And you see how these word pictures go together. And this is emphasizing Paul's point, emphasizing God's point, that our debt and our guilt for all of our sin that's been verified and given evidence by breaking God's law, it's been canceled and it's been set aside by Christ because it was nailed to the cross with him. It's his point. It's an amazing reality. God, in Christ, took the sin of all who would trust him. And when Jesus, in history, was nailed to the tree, my sin was nailed to the tree. And your sin, if you're trusting him, was nailed to that tree that record of debt was nailed to the tree, forever canceled, forever taken away. This is what the third stanza of Horatio um, Spafford's well-known hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, declares and rejoices in. Many of you know this stanza. It says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. He's talking about what Paul's talking about here in, in verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 2. And so, beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ and through his substitutionary sacrifice, we have been fully exonerated. We've been forgiven 
All of our sin, as I said, past, present, and future. Our record of debt has been fully canceled because it's been nailed to the cross of Jesus once and for all. And this means, beloved, that we're eternally free from guilt and from condemnation and from accusation. Even as we still battle sin, we do so as those who have been forgiven and cleansed already through the blood of Christ and his work on the cross. And so this is another feature of the fullness that we have in Christ, another reason that we're to be fully confident in this fullness that we have because of Christ's fullness. In him, we've been fully separated, we've been fully regenerated and fully exonerated. And this brings us to the fourth feature of our fullness in Christ, and it's this, in verse 15, in Christ we have been fully delivered. We have been fully delivered. And so you see what is said there in verse 15, that he, Christ, and this is flowing from his work on the cross and all that followed, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, the rulers and authorities that he's speaking of here, and he's mentioned these already earlier in chapter 1, have to do with all of the demonic powers and beings, Satan and all of his demons. And what we see is that Christ's authority, supremacy, and preeminence over all such demonic spiritual powers is what is being spoken of. And Paul already in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1 have spoken of Christ's absolute preeminence, authority, and supremacy over these powers. But his point now with what he's saying in verse 15 of chapter 2 is that at the cross, and again, remember the context of verses 13 and 14, at the cross and through the cross, Christ has permanently triumphed over these wicked, rebellious powers. He's disarmed them. He's rendered them powerless. And he's also put them to open shame. Now, the language that Paul's using here, the picture that he gives is that of a Roman conqueror who, after having an extensive victory, has an extensive victory parade in his kingdom. And this would happen in those days. And a parade in which the conquered king and all of his subjects who were taken prisoners would be paraded through the city. Demonstrating that they've been disarmed. Demonstrating that they're being put to open shame and humiliation by the victorious king. And this was a way of very publicly and very visibly demonstrating that the king has conquered. The king has delivered. So these who were one time a threat are no longer a threat. And so the victory and the conquest that the king has achieved means deliverance for his people. And so they're put to open shame. And that's exactly what transpired at the cross with what Jesus accomplished. Fully delivered. And now we are fully protected in Christ's authority and power. And again, the victory occurred at the cross. Think about it. The cross on the surface appeared to be Satan's most decisive victory. But in actuality, It was the event of his total and eternal defeat. 
putting him and putting all of his minions to utter shame and humility. That's what happened at the cross. Man meant it for evil, ultimately fueled by Satan himself, but God meant it for good to accomplish the salvation that he had designed and intended in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way the psalmist speaks of this prophetically in Psalm 118. When he says this, verse uh, 21 and following, I'll just read a few here in, in Psalm 118. He says, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He says, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, you may be familiar with that passage. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And often we think of that in terms of this 24-hour period of time, and indeed it is. But he's not talking about a 24-hour period of time here. He's talking about the day of salvation. And he's saying the Lord has made this and he's made it as a result of the stone that the builders rejected, the one who the builders cast out, that stone actually became the cornerstone. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. God created this. God accomplished our salvation. God accomplished our deliverance. And again, the point of what Paul is making back to Colossians chapter 2 is that because this victory has occurred, because Christ has triumphed and demonstrated the impotency and his authority and his conquest over Satan and all the demons and all rulers and authorities, then we can have confidence that we've been delivered and that we're being protected by him. And this means that for we who believe, beloved, there is no cause for fear. It relates to what Paul would say also in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. If we're in Christ, nothing can harm us. Anything that comes against us, anything that happens to us, the trials, the burdens, the pains, the suffering, the grief, it's all happening ultimately according to God's sovereign purposes and hand. And as he says in Romans 8 verse 28, everything works together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose because he's making us more like Christ and shaping us to be more and more like Christ. And so that's the point of why he adds this in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 2, to show that because Christ is triumphant, because he has conquered, we've been delivered and we are protected in all that he has given. And so this is why this matters, that we ought to be fully confident in the full completeness that we have in Christ's fullness. Because he has fully separated us, regenerated us, exonerated us, and delivered us. Now, I want to think for just a few moments as we kind of move towards wrapping this up, just about the question, why does all of this matter? Why does all of this matter? Why is this such a big deal? Why is it vital for we who are God's people to be fully confident in the full completeness that we have in Christ's fullness. Why is that important? And the answer is pretty self-evident, but it's this. It's important because it is so easy for every single one of us for our confidence in Christ to shrink and to evaporate. And any of us who are believers can testify to that by experience. 
It's easy for our confidence in Christ, in the fullness of all he is, in the fullness of all he's done, it's easy for that confidence to go away. In other words, it's so easy for us in our day-to-day experience to think that we need something or someone else more than Christ. We may not say it this way to ourselves, but it's easy for us to think Christ is not enough. And so our confidence in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, our confidence in the supremacy and sufficiency of God's word in which he reveals Christ to us can easily shrink. And when that happens, you know what happens? We become vulnerable to false teaching. We become vulnerable to shifting away from the hope of the gospel, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 23 of Colossians. We become vulnerable to being deluded with plausible arguments, as he says in verse 4 of chapter 2. We become vulnerable to being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. If our confidence in Christ, if our full confidence in the fullness of our completeness in Christ's fullness wanes, then we become vulnerable and susceptible to all kinds of false teaching that seeks to compromise this confidence in Christ alone. And so you see, this is God's burden through Paul for the Colossians believe, Colossian believers. It's God's burden for us because we live in the same kind of wicked world where there's all kinds of false teaching all around us, and God wants to protect us. You know, it's one thing to lose confidence in a GPS system and and maybe get messed up on the route you're trying to go. But if you lose confidence in Christ, and if you shrink back from faith and trust and joy and delight in knowing and obeying Jesus Christ, the consequences can be eternal. And so that's why this matters. Now, there's a follow-up question then that kind of comes from this, just to think together about this as we tease this out a little bit. Why are we so vulnerable to false teaching? Well, again, it's kind of self-evident why we can be so easily seduced and enticed and even intimidated to follow what is false and to throw away our confidence. Just think about the way the dynamic works often in our life. If we're not living by faith in Christ, if we're not being careful to walk by faith in Christ and all that he is, all that he's revealed, we begin to think that we need something else and that following Christ, trusting Christ according to his word, it's just not working. It's just not working. And part of what plays into that is this reality. Though we are fully complete in Christ, we are not yet fully mature in Christ. Let me say that again. Though we are fully complete in Christ, we are not yet fully mature. We haven't yet grown into full maturity, into full completeness. And so we can become weak and struggle and fight sin, sometimes winning, sometimes losing. But then we become discouraged. Then we become frustrated, weary, and tired. And as we strive to walk with Christ, we come to realize it's a long, hard, painful, often painful walk. And it's because though we are complete, we're not yet mature. And sometimes we just lose perspective of the fact that God is seeking to work to strengthen our maturity, to help us to grow. 
We get frustrated because we're not perfect yet. And God is often like, well, duh, I know you and, and I'm working in you. I want you to grow. I think of it this way. A lot of you know that my wife and I became grandparents this last year. Our baby boy, Ryder, our, the son of our, our daughter and her husband, uh, was born uh, just about a year ago. In fact, we had his first year birthday yesterday. His birthday's not till a week from today, but schedules were such that we had the birthday yesterday. Uh, but we celebrated that. And then, of course, our little granddaughter, Alba, was born to Tyler and Katie back in January. And uh, they're the delight of our lives, the joy of our hearts, and we're having a blast growing as grandparents. But I always marvel with little babies like Alba and like Ryder. They are fully complete, but they're obviously not quite mature yet, right? At every level, physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, intellectually, everything. And it just is a marvel because, yes, they are complete, but they're not mature. And so from the moment they were born, actually from the moment they were conceived, they began a process of growth and maturity that is going to be nurtured and encouraged by their parents in particular and by others like their grandparents and, and uncles and aunts and everything as well. But for we who are believers, often we get discouraged and impatient because we aren't yet fully mature. We lose sight of the fact that we are complete in Christ, we are fully complete, but he's working in us to make us mature and he wants us to grow. So we lose sight of the full confidence that we're to have and the full completeness that we have in Christ and become discouraged. And Paul's exhortation with all of this is given so that we would not become discouraged, but we would ever lay hold of our completeness in Christ and the fullness of our completeness in Christ and know that he is working to continue to mature us so that we wouldn't push the eject button on following and walking with Christ, looking for some other fix or some other easy solution to why we're still so imperfect. And that's what becomes the allurement and the enticement and the seduction and the intimidation of false teaching, to figure out some shortcut to following Christ. And again, in great specificity in verses 16 to the end of the chapter, Paul's going to address those things. And we'll get to that. I'm going to be out of the pulpit for a few weeks. But when I come back, we'll be back in verses 16 to 23. But we begin to think that there's some other means, some other way, some other rules, some other ceremonies, some other something we can do to somehow change. And again and again and again, God says, walk with Christ. Trust me. Know my fullness in Christ. Know the fullness of what I've done for you in Christ. Keep growing in trusting, obeying, and laying hold of all the means that God's given and walk with Christ. So again, beloved, that's the call of the passage. To be fully confident in the full completeness that you have in Christ's fullness. To have the conviction and the assurance and the confidence that Jesus, as he's revealed in God's word, is always all I need. And so therefore, as Paul says, verses 6 and 7, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's his call for us today. Amen.